Let me get mine, apparently. Now, the last uh, four weeks or so, we have done a, a topical sermon series, and so when I tell you to get your Bibles out, it may have seemed somewhat perfunctory, because we were just kind of jumping all over the place. But it's not perfunctory this morning, so open your Bibles up to the book of Leviticus, and put your little place saver there, or keep your finger there, and just keep it open on the pew next to you, because we are going to be doing some digging. We're in chapters 13, 14, and 15, primarily chapters 13 and 14, I'll explain later, uh, of Leviticus this morning. And this is the place where most people's uh, yearly Bible reading plans go to die, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, you start off your Bible reading plan January 1st, full of energy, vigor, hope, right? This year is going to be different. And then you start reading the book of Genesis. And Genesis, man, it's, a, it's such a fantastic book, so full of so many amazing stories of faith and the beginning of the universe. And then you get to Exodus. You know, it's very cinematic. Let my people go. That's my best Charles Bronson impersonation, by the way. That's for some of the older members of the congregation. Huh? Charles what? Who was it? I'm not embarrassed. Tell me, who was it? Charles, Charlton Heston. Ah, I was close. All right. Charles Bronson. Anyways. <laughs> Guys, all this is being recorded, by the way. This is why I'm never going to be a celebrity pastor. All right. Uh, but it is. It's very cin- cinematic. You know, plagues and rebellion and the first giving of the law. And then you come to Leviticus. And that's where things start to get a little squirrely, right? The first five chapters are all about sacrifices. It's a little bit of a slog, but for some people there's enough blood and entrails that it can kind of keep you going. It can keep your interest. And then, you know, if you can power through, you get to chapter 10 and you have the story of Nadab and Abihu and God's judgment against them for not worshiping him according to his rule and standard. And that's, wow, it can, that can really reinvigorate you, keep you going. Chapter 11, it's mostly about unclean animals, right? You kind of don't really know what's going on there, but then, you know, once you really understand how that unfolds and infuses the rest of salvation history, you're like, okay, that's actually pretty awesome. Then you get to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is about weird stuff having to do with childbirth, and you're kind of like, I don't really know what's happening here, but it's so short that you can just kind of power through it. And then you get to Leviticus chapter 13, and chapter 14, in chapter 15. And it's just full of a bunch of weird stuff. And you just don't really know what to do with it. And it's so long. It's just page after page of the weirdness. So some of us would just kind of casually skim through it. Uh-huh, leprosy, got it, check, uh-huh, discharges. Some of us would just skip those chapters entirely because it's like, listen, what it's really all about is not quitting. So I'm just going to skip the hard parts and keep going and That's kind of how you justify that. What if we just stop? What if we just slow down and really consider these chapters and what they have to say and why they're in God's Word and what they might mean for us today? 
Is it possible that these super strange chapters in the middle of the book of the Bible that we almost never read might actually have something to say to us today? Well, I think they do. You remember Paul told Timothy, his, his son, his, his protege, the one that he was training up to be you know, the torchbearer, he says, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now that all Scripture there doesn't have an asterisk next to it that says, except for the really weird parts of the Old Testament. Those parts have no value in training for righteousness. No. All of Scripture is breathed out by God, and it can do us good. Now, when we think about things that are helpful, we tend to think about things that are simple and clean and well laid out. Wouldn't it be great if there were some nice graphics to go along with it? You know, a kind of paint-by-numbers thing and something that you'd see at Lifeway, you know, just really accessible, written in modern English. Friends, what I've found is most of the time that kind of stuff tends to be less helpful, somewhat superficial. The stuff that really gives us spiritual life, the stuff that really brings about change in our lives, is usually stuff that we have to wrestle through, we have to slog through, we have to put on our thinking cap and try to work through. So I think that that's what's going to be good for our church to do this morning. So we're going to dig in to these chapters in Leviticus. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, uh, we thank you for this book. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in this book. And we thank you that as we study it, we will perceive more and more of who you are and we will be changed from glory to glory until you call us home. Amen. So, I know that it's been a while since we've been in the book of Leviticus, so let's take a moment to remember what the book of Leviticus is all about. The book of Leviticus is all about holiness. God is holy. He has rescued His people from slavery in the land of Egypt. He's taking them to the promised land. And He says, listen, you are to be like Me. You are to be distinct, different from all the other nations of the earth. You are to be holy. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. That's what the sacrifices are about. That's what the clothes are about. That's what, it's a holistic understanding of holiness. It's not just moral purity. Every aspect of the Israelite life was designed by God to say something about who they were and who they belonged to, from the clothes that they wore to the way that they treated their wives. Caring to the, for the poor the food that they ate. It was all supposed to be a compounding reminder to them and to the nations that they were called to holiness. Now the same thing is true in matters of personal and community health. It was all about holiness. In these chapters, we see the concept of holiness bound up in medical, ceremonial, and spiritual issues. Medical, ceremonial, and spiritual issues. Now, uh, our modern mind likes to keep all of those things cleanly and neatly separated in their own categories, right? Kind of like kids who don't want anything on their dinner plate to touch anything else, right? You know, you, your corn doesn't touch your mashed potatoes, doesn't touch your salad. 
Well, that's how the modern mind thinks about things like health and spirituality. The two just kind of don't really have anything to do with each other. But that's not true for the Israelites. That's not the way that God designed their lives to work. And I think that'll make more sense by the time we're, we're done here. But I've got three points for you this morning. Three points. Point number one, the healthy community. Point number two, the healed community. And point number three, the holy community. Healthy, healed, holy. I'll give them to you as we go. So point number one, the healthy community. Uh, It may come as somewhat of a surprise to you to find out that modern medicine, uh, medicine as we know it today, what we would call effectual medicine, didn't really come into existence until about a a hundred years ago. Uh, Even a couple of centuries into the scientific revolution, the best doctors in the world were still sticking their dirty fingers into bullet holes, and they were still primarily concerned with balancing humors and investigating the miasma in certain areas where disease epidemics were breaking out. For the vast majority of human history, treating medical issues in a particular community looked very much like what we find in these chapters of the book of Leviticus. And actually, the quality is much lower than what we find in these chapters. So let's let's talk a little bit about what we're dealing with medically in these chapters. Uh, In your English translations, as you just kind of skim through the pages of 13 and 14, you're going to see uh, the word leprosy a lot. Leprosy, leprosy, leprosy. Well, that's kind of a lazy, junk drawer, English translation, uh, a word that's used to talk about any number of different skin diseases that were present in the ancient world. Okay? It is with 100% certainty that the vast majority of skin diseases talked about in these chapters and elsewhere in the Bible that they aren't what we know of today as Hansen's disease, okay? A disease that attacks nerve cells and deadens them so that you can't feel stuff and you end up losing fingers and noses and, and toes and feet. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, rather, these chapters deal with skin ailments like ringworm, eczema, vitiligo, what we know of today to be a staph infection, Now, you can clearly see that what we're dealing with isn't what we think of when we refer to leprosy when you look at verses like chapter 13, verse 38. Go there with me. 13. We're going to start in 38. When a man or a woman has spots on the skin of the body, white spots, the priest shall look, and if the spots on the skin of the body are a dull white, it is leucoderma, that's vitiligo, Uh, and that has broken out in the skin, he is clean. If a, man hair, if a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald, he is clean. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead, he is clean. Some of y'all have that, by the way. Uh, he is clean. And we could just kind of keep going on, but you, you see that just by looking at three verses kind of back to back to back, you can see that they're looking at any number of different skin ailments and diseases that are not in any way kind of like leprosy of what we No, today. You can see it. Go to 13, starting in verse 13 and going down to verse 17. Then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all of his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. 
it has all turned white, and he is clean. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Raw, raw flesh, what we would call an open wound, is unclean, for it is a leprous disease. But if the raw flesh recovers and turns white again, that is, if it heals up and scabs over, then he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And if the disease has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. Now what you see here is that the priest is acting as a sort of doctor for the people. Now, that word doctor wouldn't mean anything to, to people in, in this time. Not, it, doesn't, it wouldn't mean to them what it means to us today, but that's kind of how we can understand what he's doing. He's kind of acting as a doctor. Uh, when, when we went to the jungle, uh, I was a, a, a paramedic, and uh, if you know anything about the medical hierarchy, you know that a, a paramedic is not like an uber-trained medical professional. I was trained up a little bit higher because uh, I had to be a medic in a war zone and there's not always a doctor around. But even still, you know, you have medic and then you have like maybe what I was and then you have like a nurse, right? And then you have uh, uh, what our sister Allison is, a, a nurse practitioner. And then you have like a PA and then a doctor, right? And even then there's variance amongst doctors. But a medic is just, he's just slightly more medically trained than the average Joe, Okay. And uh, in the jungle, I was much more trained than the average Joe. And that's kind of how the priests were. You know, they were not trained medical professionals. They were just kind of more informed about how to treat these kinds of community health issues than the average Israelite was, okay? That's how they functioned. They were the ones to decide if a skin disease was a health risk for the community. You can see this when you look at chapter 13, verse 2. It says... When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns out to be a case of leprous disease on the skin of the body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Okay, the priest is, he's going, is that a pimple or is that something worse than a pimple? Right, that's essentially what he's doing. Is it an ingrown hair or is it staff? Uh, now this process usually involves uh, just a basic evaluation of the skin, a further observation and follow-up, and then a judgment about risk or lack thereof. Okay? And honestly, when it comes to skin infections, that's not very different than the way things happen today in modern medicine, right? I even checked with one or two of our medical professionals in the congregation to make sure I wasn't saying something silly here, but uh, you should know that more often than not, when you go to your family doctor because you've got a skin infection or a rash thing, and you, know, you lift up your shirt and you show her your rash, your, your general practitioner probably doesn't know what that is. Yeah, she could probably take an hour and go look it up and try to find out and diagnose the exact infection. But, you know, a lot of the time they just go, huh, yeah, let me give you some steroid cream. Keep an eye on it. Make sure it doesn't get bigger or redder or grow teeth. And then, you know, come back to me if things start to get bad or let me know if it gets better. Now, there were additional public safety measures 
put in place beyond just pronouncing the person clean or unclean based on their skin disease. Priests would examine the garments of the clothes to make sure that whatever was causing the outbreak of the skin infection didn't persist in things that would continue to spread it. So look at chapter 13, verses 47 through 52. When there is a case of leprous disease in a garment, whether a woolen or a linen garment, in a warp or woof of linen or wool, that's like down in the creases, or in a skin or in anything else made of skin, so leather, if the disease is greenish or reddish, if the garment uh, in the garment or in the skin or in the warp or the woof or in any article made of skin, it is a case of leprous disease and it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall examine the disease and shut up that which has the disease for seven days. Then he shall examine the disease on the seventh day. If the disease has spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof or in the skin, whatever be the use of the skin, the disease is a persistent leprous disease, it is unclean. And he shall burn the garment or the whoop, excuse me, or the warp or the woof, the wool or the linen or any article made of skin that is diseased, for it is a persistent leprous disease, it shall be burned in the fire." Again, this is not very far removed from what we do today. Uh, I do jujitsu, and I get staph infections from time to time. And one of the things that you're supposed to do when you get a staph infection is wash your sheets regularly because what can happen is you can be recovering from your staph infection, but it can still be kind of oozing out on the bed, and the sheets can reinfect you or it can, re- it can infect the person who's in the bed with you. Now, uh, they tell you here you got to burn the clothes. What they do is they, they, they take the leather or the wool or the linen or whatever, they shut it up in a room for seven days, and they come back to look at it to see if it, was, if it was just a splotch of something or if it was actually like moldy and persistent. And if they come back and they find that it's actually something moldy and persistent, something that could continue to the further spread of the disease, you burn it. Well, why burn it? Why not just wash it? Well, there's just a couple of practical reasons. Namely, you think about the fact that you're in the middle of the desert, Okay, water is not readily abundant, and if it is abundant, the ability to wash stuff every day is probably not possible, so it's probably just easier to go ahead and burn it, get rid of it, and then get some more linen or leather or what have you, okay? Now, these laws addressed the person and their skin, they addressed the clothes that they wore, but they even addressed environmental factors that could be causing outbreaks. I mean, it's amazing. It seems just like a, a modern community health textbook, just an older, weirder language. Look at chapter 14, verse 43. <coughs> if the disease breaks out again in the house after he has taken out the stones, so the, one of the things that the priest had to do was if there was an infection that persisted in a the house, they had to take everything out of the house, clean it, and kind of put it back together again. I know that sounds weird to you because your house is uh, a modern American house. It was much easier to do this with an ancient Israelite house, which was basically just some mud and sticks and rocks, okay? So you had to clean the whole house. But if, if it breaks out again after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. This sort of thing, again, still happens all the time. You think about uh, 
uh, mold growing in basements. We actually had to put a fan in our bathroom because no matter what, the moisture there was so high that mold just kept growing on the walls no matter what we did. Now, in 14, 46 through 47, you see a, a, a policy and procedure that should seem super familiar to you. Go to 14, 46, and 47. Moreover, whoever enters the house while it is shut up shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever sleeps in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. So basically, this house is infected. We know it for a fact. The priest has examined it. And anybody who goes in there needs to make sure that they wash themselves, they take care of themselves, they try to make sure that they don't spread it to anywhere else. When I read this, I just thought about uh, Moe's Barbecue recently. They had to close down for like three days because they found out that one of the workers had the coronavirus. And the thing that they put out was, hey, we're going to close for a couple of days so that we can deep clean this place and make sure that we're doing whatever we can so that we're not spreading the virus more than we have to, okay? That's exactly what you see happening here in these pages. Now, if all of this skin disease stuff seems very strange to you, like, okay, Sean, I get it, it's community health, you know, but like, why is it all about skin diseases? Well, the reason why you think that, well, there's two reasons. Number one is because you have modern medicine. So a skin disease is nothing to you. It doesn't freak you out. It doesn't scare you because on the list of things that could kill you or cause you serious harm uh, with modern medicine, skin diseases are just at the very bottom of that. But the second reason is because you live in a time and a place where you are almost never exposed to the wild. You're never exposed to environmental factors. I mean, you can control the degree of your environment precisely, right? I mean, you know, 72 in the house... It's so hot. I can't sleep. I'm burning up, right? So what do you do? You kick the AC down. Okay, 68. Oh, too cold. I'm freezing. Kick it right up to 70. Boom. That's perfect. I see some of you guys looking at each other, husbands and wives, as if this is a source of controversy between you. Uh, yes, but you live in a place where you can control your, the, 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 the temperature of your environment down to the degree. Not only that, but you can control the humidity of your environment. You know, your homes are built with certain, uh, certain, I don't know, I'm about to step out of my depth here because I know nothing about building stuff, but I do know that homes are built to control the way that air flows in and out, okay? Part of that has to do with moisture and humidity. That's why there's fans in the bathroom to get all the steam out from the shower that you take. And guess what? If there's a certain part of your house that doesn't do it that well, you can get a humidifier, or you can get a dehumidifier, or you can put in a fan. Or you, you, know, we, you, you just never have to be exposed to anything that is even a degree out of your comfort zone because of the day and age that you live in. When Amber and I moved to the Amazon jungle, within two months, I had an infection growing on my face. And if you're thinking, Sean, that's super gross. You have no idea. It was grosser than you can imagine, and it was on my face. I couldn't do anything about it. I, there was no doctor I could go see. You know, uh, they, had, they had witch doctors in our village and, and in every village down there, and their answer for everything was violetta, this little purple stuff that, you know, you cut off your arm, you put some violetta on it. You got a skin disease, you put some violetta on it. Your kid's not growing, you put some violetta on it. That was the, you know, it's kind of like multivitamins for, for your parents' generation. Uh, and yeah. 
Amber still has something on her skin to this day that she got from our time in South America, and it, it will not go away. We just kind of feed it, try to keep it happy, and just hope that nothing too bad happens there. But, you know, if, if you lived in somewhere just basically outside of the affluent West where you had to be even slightly exposed to the environment around you, these chapters would make a lot more sense to you. It would, it would make perfect sense to you. So, point number two, the healed community. The healed community. So we've seen that all of chapter 13 and chapter 14 is basically concerned with diagnosing and containing various skin diseases. Excuse me, chapter 13. Chapter 14 is mostly concerned with the cleansing process. Now, it is super important that you read chapter 14 carefully. If you misunderstand chapter 14, you're going to think some pretty wonky stuff. As a matter of fact, chapter 14 of Leviticus and other places like it uh, have been used by certain critics of the Bible uh, to point out that this is really just a backwards book. You know, They say that chapter 14 is like some kind of ancient Near Eastern shamanism wherein you, know, you use bloody pigeons and hyssop to get rid of diseases in your community. And doesn't that show you then that this book is not from God at all, but rather it's just the invention of early people who happen to believe in this God called Yahweh? Well, friends, unfortunately, uh, those attacks on the trustworthiness of Scripture and the inspiration uh, of the Bible are just lazy. Well, not unfortunately, I guess fortunately for us. Let me just show you what I mean. Let's just go to chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then in the case, if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them in the live bird and the blood and the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Now you can see if you read this one way, it can seem like this is some kind of, you know, hocus pocus, eye of newt, the toe of a gecko, mix it all in a pot, sprinkle it on you seven times, and now you're healed of the disease. But that's actually not the case at all, because when you read it, it says that these, this ceremony can only take place once the priest sees that the person is healed. Go back and look again. Chapter 14, start in verse 2. This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, then you do all these things. Then you carry out the ceremony. This ceremony was not a, a healing ceremony. This ceremony was designed to communicate something about the reality of the healing that had already taken place. 
And the healing that had taken place, we use the word healing, we think miraculous. That's not what this means here. It doesn't mean a miracle had taken place and now the leprosy was gone. No, friends, the Bible is much more earthy than that. It just means the person has recovered. They no longer have the skin infection anymore. And so now we're going to have this ceremony to celebrate. Now, uh, these cleansing ceremonies, they were rich with symbolic meaning. And just because the symbolism of the ceremony seems strange to you doesn't mean it doesn't have a purpose. Right? We're not going to talk all about the exact details of, of the meaning of you know, why the hyssop and why seven times this, and partly because uh, I just don't know the meaning for all of it. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm only one man. But the other reason is because you don't have to understand what it all means to understand basically what's taking place here. This is a celebration. This person had a disease that marked them as unholy. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Because of that, they had to be put outside of the camp. But now when they're healed and they're allowed to come back inside of the camp, we're going to celebrate. But before moving on to the third point, which deals with that uh, at, at greater length, I just want to tell you for your, own, for your own comfort, your own strength and faith as you read weird parts of the Bible, let me tell you that as I've been walking with the Lord, and as I've tried to be a careful student of the scriptures, uh, I've come across a bunch of different things that just seemed really strange to me, things that at first glance didn't make sense, or s- things that at first glance seemed like contradictions. And what I've always been committed to is, is digging in and not just saying, ah, well, you've got to have faith, you know? Well, it all makes sense when we get to heaven. I've been committed to not doing that, but trying to understand God's word as it really is. And let me tell you, Almost every single time, and I'll come back to the almost, almost every single time that that has happened, I've come across something weird or strange or difficult, and I've dug into it, I found a perfectly reasonable explanation. You know, the Bible is a book written by, you know, 40-some-odd authors. It's 66 books that runs the span of thousands of years. It's from a culture and a time and a place very different than ours, and it's inspired by a God that is beyond our understanding. So of course there's going to be times when you come to the Bible and things just don't immediately make sense to you. But that doesn't mean you need to discard it. It means you need to dig in even more. Now when I say almost, almost everything I've dug into has made sense. The fact is is that I've probably done it a hundred times and there's been one or two times where I just couldn't reconcile certain things. I just couldn't figure out, like, this is super weird, God, and I don't understand it and I can't find a good explanation for it. But friends, that's, that's okay. Because a book that you could fully understand would be less than you. But this is not a book that you can fully understand because it is a book that was penned by God himself. And if the God who wrote this book is not fully comprehensible by your finite mind, neither will his book be. But praise God that he has made his book plain. The reformers called it perspicuous. All that we need for life and godliness is readily available. All that we need for salvation has been made abundantly clear to us. So if you get to Leviticus and you wonder why these guys had to shave off their eyebrows after they had been healed of leprosy and you can't quite find the answer for it, it's okay. You'll know one day. Point number three, the holy community. You know how the Bible opens. In the beginning, and then God speaks. 
And when God speaks, he set the cosmos into perfect order. The sky, the sea, the land, every quark and anti-quark and atom therein, they're all ordered to perfection when God communicates. And then you know how it goes as you continue to read the Bible. Sin enters into the world and with sin comes disorder or de-creation. Now, some scientists understand this phenomenon uh, of decreation from a strictly materialistic perspective. That is, there's nothing outside of the laws of the universe. It's all a closed system. There is no God. And so when they look at the world and they see that it's obviously crumbling, they try to describe it. One of the ways that they try to describe that is the second law of thermodynamics. Stated plainly, the second law of thermodynamics basically says that the universe is in a constant state of entropy. That is, things are constantly moving from a state of order to disorder. It's happening all around you. You may not see it, you may not perceive it. It happens faster and slower at certain times. But everything in the universe is slowly coming apart. That's the reason why metal rusts. It's the reason why weeds take over your garden. It's the reason why sandcastles crumble. It's the reason why all the cells in your body slowly begin to die and then decompose. Now what's interesting about the the strictly materialist perspective is that the person who holds it has no answer to the problem of entropy, right? For all the materialist knows, there was nothing that combined with nothing, which then turned into everything, but then that everything is slowly, slowly falling apart back into nothing again. Fun stuff. But the Christian knows better. God's people have understood why entropy exists for thousands of years, even though that word never existed. And they've known about God's solution to the problem of the way sin has shot through every aspect of this universe and the way that this universe is slowly going through a process of decreation. Listen to the Apostle Paul talking about this from a theological perspective long before anyone ever knew about the second law of thermodynamics. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of of the glory of the children of God. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that all of creation has been damaged by sin. And the only hope for creation is that God is going to one day come and reorder it, reestablish it. Later in the Bible, this is called the new heavens and the new earth. But the point that I'm trying to drive home for you this morning is that creation was not meant to be like this. We were not intended to have cancer and tumors and AIDS and skin diseases. Creation was not meant to be what Paul here calls futile. So these skin diseases that the people of Israel are experiencing here in the book of Leviticus, they are not part of what God originally called his good creation. Now what does any of that have to do with holiness? Well, you have to remember that holiness, in our minds, oftentimes we just think about moral purity, doing all the right things, 
not doing all the wrong things. But holiness in the Bible, particularly for the Old Covenant people of Israel, was a much more holistic thing. It didn't involve just what you did morally. It involved all of creation, all of your life experience. So the person who has a dis-ease, a disease, a manifestation of a skin problem, what that's doing is it's communicating something about sin and the nature of the fall and the presence of death in this world. And that would make them unclean or unholy, not in the moral sense, but in the ceremonial sense. So not only do these practices protect the community from a potentially contagious disease, but they also communicate something about death and decreation. Look at chapter 13, 46. We'll start in verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. Now, I don't really know what's going on there with the covering of the upper lip, but the, the long hair, the torn clothes, the crying out unclean, it's almost like what was, what's happening in this room right now with people wearing masks. It's intended to communicate that everything here is not normal, right? That's his way of saying, stay away from me, I might get you sick. But, go on in verse 30, 46, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The camp is where God's holy people reside together as a holy community. This person has been made unholy by this skin disease. And so temporarily, until they're healed, they go outside of the camp. Then healing takes place. And when healing takes place, he's brought back into the camp. The priest looks at him. He sees that he's fine. They go through a ceremony. And they bring this guy who everyone knew was not holy. Right? He's walking around going, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. Not a massive camp. Everybody knows that he's unclean. He, everybody sees him get sent outside of the camp. Everybody knows there's Joe living outside of the camp because he's unholy. And so when he finally gets to be pronounced holy, and he comes back into the camp, it's a celebration. Because it's a picture of restoration. Holiness has been reestablished for the people of God. Now the Old Testament is full of different kinds of imagery like this. But what about us? The new covenant people of God. Well, as, as new covenant people... We still, have a, we still have a practice that's designed to communicate something about holiness and about our passing from death to life, passing from outside of the people of holiness into the people of holiness. That's called baptism. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Verse 3. We're going to start there and read to verse 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. There's that symbolism of death. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When the Israelite was pronounced unclean, unholy, and sent outside of the camp, it was a proclamation to him and to the entire community that death still had dominion. But when he was pronounced clean and brought back into the camp, it was a declaration that death no longer reigned. The effects of the fall have been removed. Friends, that's what baptism is. We see that death has lost its dominion. It's lost its power. And we see that symbol enacted every time a person goes down into the water and raised up. And that's another reason why baptism is so intricately, intricately connected to church membership. You're baptized into this community and out of the world. Now, for the people of Israel, every aspect of their life communicated something about eternity. From skin infections to baby deliveries, every animal said something about God's holiness and sin and the nature of life as we know it. But friends, we live in an unenchanted world. Symbolism is all but dead in the modern West. The only symbols that still exist are political and superstitious. So when we get a weird rash, we think, huh, that's strange. wonder how that got there. I better go to the doctor. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But why don't we ever think, huh, it wasn't supposed to be this way. I'm still living in a fallen world. I still have not received my glorified body. I'm still in this flesh which is corruptible. And then when we go to the doctor and we get our medicated cream and we rub it on there every day for five days, not seven, even though the doctor told us seven, but we never do the full thing like he tells us to do. And then the rash goes away, of course, after five days and not seven, because I knew I didn't have to do it for seven anyways. When the rash goes away, we don't think, wow, what a beautiful picture of restoration and healing. When the rash goes away, we don't think about when God is going to come and wipe away every tear and reestablish the perfect goodness of His creation. You know, as weird as these chapters are in the book of Leviticus, I think these, these ancient Israelites had a step up on us when it comes to thinking about eternal things. Because eternity was laced through every aspect of their lives. And for us, eternity is only present when we open our Bibles and show up to church on Sunday. But it shouldn't be. When we get an infection, we deliver a baby, we eat dinner, and we have sexual relations, 
when we do any of these things that are talked about in the book of Leviticus, we have an opportunity to glorify God. I think the Apostle Paul understood this. I think he understood it better than most. That's why God inspired him to write these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being who you are. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving us your word. We know that your spirit has been present with us this morning. We pray that your spirit would apply the truth of your word to our hearts so that we might be holy as a people, even as you are holy, our God. Amen.